There's an old saying, sometimes you get the bear and sometimes the bear gets you. In Baldur's Gate 3, sometimes you get the bear and the bear gets you. Welcome to Triple Click, where we bring the games to you. Today we're talking about the Baldur's Gate series in honor of the pending release of Baldur's Gate 3. We've got some history, some D&D chat, and some early impressions of the new game. So grab your D20 and let's get into it. I'm Kirk Hamilton. I'm Maddie Myers. And I'm Jason Schreier. Hello. Hello. Hope you both Hello. have your 20-sided die and you're ready to roll <laughs> some Mine are actually, performance mine, checks. It's actually oh, yeah. right here. <laughs> I could do some skill checks right <laughs> can now. Can you roll one? Can you do a performance check right yeah, now? Yeah, let's Kirk? get a little foley. See, let's, do, let's do a performance check to see if you can keep going with this podcast or if we have to stop right, right now. Mm-hmm. Wait, what was I rolling against? Uh, yeah, what's the? Well, tell what's, us what you got, and then we'll tell you if you pass. I rolled a seventeen. Yeah, so yeah. I have a proficiency <laughs> in podcasting. Yeah, that's yeah, like a plus have, four. You have yeah. some additional yeah, yeah. numbers you can stack yeah. on top of there. Yeah, for that's sure. A good one. That's a good one. How about people roll to see how much they're going to subscribe to Max Fun? Mm. Like how much they're going to give? You have to roll to for that, members. or do you just check your bag and see how much gold you have? <laughs> here's here's what we're going to do. I'm going to roll a persuasion check right mm. now, and mm-hmm, we're going to mm-hmm. see. If I can persuade you to become a member of Maximum Fun and support our podcast, which means we get to keep making podcasts and you get to listen to monthly bonus episodes from our show and support our worker-owned co-op network, Maximum Fun. And look at that. I rolled a natural 20. Can Whoa. you believe it? So you're all convinced. I just convinced everybody wow. that was a, a natural Jedi 20. That's trick. a, there you a go. critical success. Can you actually roll and see what you get? <laughs> Don't. No, no. I mean, I did roll. Oh, Sorry, Jason. 20. I did. I got a twenty. So uh, wow. maximumfun.org. I, didn't, I didn't hear any dice. Yeah, that's, I didn't either. Uh, but that's I where guess you're it, gonna it go. Happened. I was. It was to the side of the mic. Um, anyways, <laughs> maximumfun.org/join. Go become a member because if you do, uh, you support our show and you get bonus episodes. We just did one on Silo and we talked some about post-apocalyptic storytelling, which was a lot of fun. And we we're kind of building up a little. A little canon of post-apocalyptic stories that we've covered in the in the bonus episodes. So it was a nice kind of roundup of a lot of those ideas. Also a cool show and a fun one to talk about. And this month, of course, we are going to be doing a big old beans cast where we spill the beans on The Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. I haven't finished yet. Jason has. We're, we're finally going to do it, though. We're all going to finish. Maddie hasn't finished either. Um, well, just, we're going to get to the end of that game. To. It's not for lack of trying. It's just such There's a good a lot. game. There's How could I ever want to leave, you know? I feel the same way. Um, so we're going to we're gonna finish the game. We're going to talk about the story. We'll just talk more about that game since there's much more to say now that we've all played a whole lot of it. So that'll be out toward the end of August. But there's a million bonus episodes that you can listen to. Okay, not a million. There's like 38 of them, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> Close enough. It's kind of um, like a million, yeah. It's, it's the way podcast more than equivalent. 20. Of a million. So go listen to those and if you're a member. And if you want to become a member, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. And thanks so much to everybody who makes this podcast possible. Okay, Jason, what are we talking about this week? This week, it is time for a what's the deal with? What's the deal with? Dun, What's dun, the deal dun. with? What is the What's deal? What's the deal with? Bum, ba, da, bum. <laughs> uh, Baldur's Gate. 
What's the deal with Baldur's Gate? So this what week is, is the, the release on PC of Baldur's Gate 3. Console releases are coming down the line, but for now it's on PC. And Baldur's Gate 3, kind of against the odds, has turned into one of, mo- one of the most hyped games of this year. Even though it's kind of a crunchy, crunchy role-playing game that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think would be that. So what we're going to do today is explain how we got here. How did we get to this D&D nerd game becoming one of the biggest role-playing games of 2023 what is Baldur's Gate who's Baldur's Gate when is Baldur's Gate uh how what, is Baldur's what's the Gate deal? what is the deal with this whole thing and also we're going to talk a little bit about some early impressions of Baldur's Gate 3 which I have been playing Maddie has played a little bit and Kirk has created a character which is yeah I have I just did I just um, got back in town and I made a character excellent so we'll talk about that a little bit later but first we're going to zoom out and talk about Baldur's Gate in general. So, are we zooming out to an isometric view? Are we, yes, are we pressing Wazdy to, to advance really far around the map just yes, to see where yes, we could just go? Just to see where we yep, can go. Yep. So, Baldur's Gate is kind of an interesting franchise. It's um, it started. The first game was released in 1998, and it was developed by at the time a little known company called. Bioware. It was published by Black Isle and Interplay and they kind of, some of the folks from Black Isle helped work on the game as well. And so Baldur's Gate, so back in the 90s, there was kind of there was there was a moment in time, a few year period when everybody kind of hated RPGs. RPGs didn't sell well, there weren't a lot of good ones, there were a lot of bad ones. Um, D&D especially, there were a lot of games with the D&D license that were just not very good, including another one from Interplay that, that was really around the same time as Baldur's Gate called Descent to Undermountain and bad bad video game. Um, and so when Baldur's Gate came, nobody expected it to be much of a hit. In fact, Interplay's uh, or Black Isle's boss, uh, Fergus Urquhart, who would later go on to found Obsidian Entertainment, um, he said in an interview at one point that like they didn't expect it to sell anything. They expected like 50,000 copies to be sold. Instead, it became this sensation. And the reason it became a sensation and ultimately wound up selling millions of copies is because it was really, really good. It was kind of this authentic role-playing game with like a big... <laughs> meaty world and D&D rules and you could go around and you form a party and you could talk to people and go on quests and like explore and it just felt like there was this the sense of mystery the sense of wonder the sense that you could go to any map and find just about anything like you could find all sorts of fascinating things it kind of it was really one of the earliest games to evoke the same feeling you might feel now while playing I don't know, a Skyrim or a Zelda. Um, and it was, it was in, ver- in many ways a successor to the Ultima series, which had kind of uh, uh, tapered off by this point. Ultima 7, I believe, was, was considered like one of the last great ones. Um, yes. And yeah, Baldur's Gate. So it was, I think, one of the real big revelations and one of the reasons it was such a big success was... Um, this unique combat system it had where it was real time, but you could also pause, which was pretty revolutionary for the time. So you could pause at any time and assign your characters marching orders, or you could just watch it all unfold in real time. So it kind of had that really best of both worlds in terms of like 
real time and turn based, which at the time also turn based was was kind of uh, uh, out of out of fad in this era in 1998. So yeah, I mean, uh, from there we went to Baldur's Gate two, which really took that formula and just like totally blew it up and made it into this epic experience and also um, uh, gave you higher level characters, which uh, as the indie players know is much more fun because it opens up a lot of a lot more possibilities, a lot of uh, higher level spells. If there was a big knock on Baldur's Gate 1, it was that it was super hard because you were solo leveled and, and everything around you could kill you at any time. Um, and then from there, we went to uh, Baldur's Gate 2 Throne of Baal, which is the expansion pack, although really it's more of a trilogy. Um, you guys didn't play any of those games, correct? Mm-mm. No, I played Neverwinter Nights and Planescape mm. Torment, oh, yeah. but I did not play Baldur's Gate. Though over the weekend, I finally watched a sort of story summary video oh, okay. on Baldur's Gate one and two that we can maybe put in the show notes, and that was really cool. Um, it, it made me think I would have really liked those games, but I didn't play them at the time. Yeah, they've—I don't know how well they've aged, especially when you're playing modern Baldur's Gate three. But um, but yeah, they were awesome at the time. I mean, I remember when I first played Baldur's Gate one. It came in this thick package with like a big instruction manual with all the D and D rules, and then the sleeve that had—I believe it was either six or five CDs, um, which was like, oh my <laughs> god, like this game is shipping on six CDs. What I bet that do smelled. Here? Amazing. I bet if you smelled, smelled what like that parchment. sleeve smelled like, mm-hmm. it would take yeah. you immediately back to the first moment that you opened the box. Yes, I bet I still have the discs. It's like new here. car smell, but for games. New mm-hmm, game right. smell. Mm-hmm, that paper. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Good that stuff. Plasticky. Yeah, and and you know, you knew you were in for a treat when you picked up a, a, a new computer game and it was six And it CDs. had that many discs? Oh, oh boy. Man. These days they brag about word count and like gigabytes, but come on, put it on the CDs or we don't understand how big it is, you know? And then the game unfolded in like map screens. So you you start off on one big map screen in the city called Candle Keep, and then you move to new ones as you go. And I remember being totally like blown away when I got to the titular city of Baldur's Gate. <laughs> And it was like seven map screens, like all connected wow, to each seven other. It was map like mind blowing. It was, I think, it was two different CDs just for that one city, Baldur's Gate. Um, so yeah, the scope of it was mind boggling, and just like everything really worked together really nicely. It was really well written, and of course, it would go on to uh, lead to the entire the Bioware RPG as we know it. Mass Effect and Dragon Age were both kind of separate, separate kind of branches on the tree of that all started with Baldur's Gate. I guess it wasn't Bioware's first game. That was Shattered Steel, but um, it was the first game that really led to Bioware RPGs as we know them. Um, And then something interesting happened with the Baldur's Gate series, which is that there was a Baldur's Gate 3 in development um, at uh, Black Isle and Interplay, but Interplay had kind of a meltdown, and I won't get into all the the details here, but essentially Baldur's Gate 3 got cancelled, Interplay shut down, and the series just kind of languished for a while. Um, at a certain point, uh, a company called Beamdog, which was made up of a few ex-Bioware folks, they came out with some re-releases of Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, enhanced editions, they called them, which you can get on Steam. And if you're going to play the games today, those are the versions to get because they feel a little bit more modern. Um, for are, sure. are designed for modern computers, with HD graphics and stuff. Um, and... Uh, Beamdog, as well as several other companies, tried to make a Baldur's Gate 3, but for whatever reason, Wizards of the Coast, the makers of D&D, the licensed operator, did not want to let them 
do it. Um, I think uh, uh, Brian Fargo tried to get the license at one point. I, I think, if I remember correctly, Obsidian might have. Um, the point being, various part, various like RPG developers wanted to do it, but nobody, nobody could. And then enter a little studio called Larian. So this is where we get into modern history. Kirk, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of Larian with Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2 and how they kind of broke onto the scene? Because you played those games. You played the first game, right? Divinity Original Sin 2, or 1, Larian's kind of breakout hit in 2014? Yes. Or, I mean, that was the game that broke out to me. Um, There were people who liked the Divinity series. They had made Divine Divinity, Divinity 2. There had kind of been a bunch of games set in this world that were all slightly different kinds of RPGs, if I'm remembering correctly, but I didn't play any of them. Um, I'd sort of been aware of them. They existed in that space of PC role-playing games that look like the games you played in the 90s that you've never really, that you're not aware of if you're just sort of following mainstream gaming and you're not a more sort of niche RPG player. And then I saw something about Divinity Original Sin. It might have just been, I think it was maybe like a rock, paper, shotgun interview with um, Sven Vinke, is that his name? Mm-hmm. The, uh, Sven, the yeah. head of the studio. I believe it was him talking about how inspired he was by Ultima 7, specifically Ultima 7 Part 2 Serpent Isle, which is a game that I poured hours into uh, when I was in high school in the 90s and really loved. And, you know, he, he, ta- he was talking a lot about systemic role-playing games and having every item, you know, be accounted for in the game. And, you know, I, I think I saw some screenshots where they had the little pop-up bag that is like your backpack that looks like a backpack, but then has a grid inside of it. And they were dragging it around on the screen or something. And I remember thinking, <laughs> and you were oh. sold. You were like, grid. <laughs> yeah, grid I was backpack. like, this is what I want. Because sometimes it really is those little aesthetic markers that tell you that the game is what the game is going to be. And in this case, I think it really did. So I downloaded it on a total lark. I, yeah, I don't even really remember making the decision, started playing it, and immediately was just you know, really bowled over by it. This was Divinity Original Sin. This was in, I guess, 2014. Uh, it might have even been in early access before the game, you know, was was finally released. But it was kind of right before the, the full release of the game. So earlier in that year that it was released. So, yeah, I played a bunch of it um, and just loved the hell out of it. I almost beat it. I don't know if I finished it. It's uh, sort of similar to what we said about Divinity Original Sin 2, where it sort of loses steam past a certain point. Mm-hmm. But it has that same magical feeling. It had that same magical feeling for me where it's so um, simulated and complex while you're playing through the story that it kind of feels magical whenever the story actually continues and responds to you someone appears you get teleported to a new dimension like real story stuff is happening it kind of feels more like it's happening in a real world because you've spent so long moving through this dense simulation instead of just moving along what's clearly a pre-written track so it had that kind of uh, magic and i really liked it and then of course they released divinity original sin 2 and this was sort of the they definitely had become much more noteworthy Uh, a lot more people were aware of them um, in the space between the first Divinity original, uh, Divinity original Sin and then the sequel. And then they released a director's cut of that, which is out on consoles, and you can play. They added a ton of voice acting. Like it, They've kind of just been gradually going from niche, kind of you know isometric, old-school role-playing game to more modern Bioware-style role-playing game, what you would call Bioware-style. And by that, I mean specifically uh, Dragon Age Origins, the Dragon Age series, a kind of more voiced, more 
you know, a lot more voice acting, a lot more drama, a little less crunchy and a little more accessible, though still pretty crunchy. Yeah, Dust 2 was pretty crunchy. Baldur's Gate 3 is pretty crunchy, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. the thing about these uh, themes, D&D is pretty crunchy, right? <laughs> it is. D&D it is. is super crunchy. I mean, the thing the thing about Larian's games, in contrast to the isometric, the Baldur's Gate, original Baldur's Gate trilogy that I talked about earlier, is that Larian's games give you a lot more verbs. And when we talk about systemic, we're really talking about abilities to interact with the world in ways that aren't just like moving around and talking to people and fighting with people. Um, and that I think is what really made them feel special to a lot of people that, and the combination of that and kind of choice, um, player choice and getting to kind of, uh, choose different options, quests and solve quests in different ways, which is, is part of that Bioware style that blended with the systems, I think is a really, a really potent combination that made DOS one and then DOS two, especially work really well for a lot of people. Um, and so for example, I mean, you can kill pretty much anybody in the game and the game will interact to that. You can, um, I don't know, you can throw a, a barrel of oil at the ground and then light it on fire and watch a massive fire burn. Um, in Baldur's Gate 3, for example, I mean, I just did this little quest thing um, in Act 1, which is all I've, I'm up to, so it's all early access stuff that people will have been able to to. Um, play already so don't worry too much about like spoilers or anything but I just did this little quest thing where like I got to this house and there was this raging fire inside the house and like as I did stuff the fire would continue and I would watch these fireballs explode and like burn furniture and like burn up the entire house and so I did move quickly before that happened Um, so that sort of like interactivity with the world is really interesting I think Um, Maddie you haven't played any of these games right? No Baldur's Gate 3 is my first one and it is a lot crunchier than I expected it to be, and I'm having a really good time with it, but the learning curve is pretty high. I definitely mm-hmm. was like, wow, I didn't realize how many buttons there were going to be on the screen. It was bringing back a little bit of StarCraft II for me. Lot, lots to read, lots to do, and also, as Jason said, lots of different verbs that you can do for everything. Like you can press control and decide what you want to do. You can attack a barrel or you can search a barrel. You can attack a guy or attack a door or lockpick a door or try to push the door or click on another person in your party and ask them to lockpick the door. It's like you can just be standing in front of a door for 20 minutes, just kind of figuring out what you want to do with the door. I mean, that's that's D&D, baby. It's, it's really taking me back to the last time I played D&D, which was a decade ago. You know, even from making my character, I've definitely already noticed that they are using a much simplified version of, of D&D compared with Baldur's Gate 1 and 2, which I think was 2nd oh, okay. edition and was also the version of D&D that I learned on, which was very, very complicated. And Baldur's Gate 3 is using 5th edition, which uh, is the same rule set that I've been using actually in my actual real-life D&D group. That's the current and version. Mm-hmm. That is the current version. Um, and it's uh, it's been great for me, partly because I've been playing that version of D&D in real life, and that really does help. Oh, I bet, um, yeah. When, when I started playing D&D with this group a year and change ago, I had a similar feeling, Maddie, where I really felt unprepared, and a lot of them had been doing it. My my friends yeah. who play had been playing already, or they had just they do their homework more than I do. I'm just it always makes me feel unprepared. So it's taken me a long time to remember how everything works. But now that I do, it it made it a lot easier actually to even just roll a character in Baldur's Gate three because 
a lot of that is because fifth edition has been significantly streamlined compared to you know second edition back when they were making the the first two games. Yeah, I mean those games were <laughs> talking about crunchy. It's pretty absurd. I mean, there was <laughs> yeah. this there was this uh, this um, concept called FACO to hit armor class zero. It's an acronym, and mm-hmm. basically <laughs> meant that the lower your armor number, the better it was. It was the most like like <laughs> counterintuitive system. Yeah, it was so. Right. No, um, big right. numbers so, yeah, are supposed to be good. That's exactly. The only yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, this makes D and D five E is way way better. Way makes more way more sense. They get rid of alignments, which which makes things a lot more fun. Um, but let's right. let's let's get into Baldur's Gate three. But first, to just kind of set the scene here. So after all of those years and years, really like sixteen years of no Baldur's Gate three from two thousand one to two thousand seventeen, suddenly DOS two comes out. Larian is really establishing itself as like one of the better RPG developers in the world. Um, they're based in Belgium, by the way, although they have studios uh, all over these days in six different countries. Um, so Wizards of the Coast comes to them and says, hey, we want you to make Baldur's Gate 3. They start working together on this idea, and they come up with a concept. It comes out in early access in 2020, October of 2020. And then three years later, it is finally entering real release after a number of obstacles, including um, I just spoke to Sven last week about some of this stuff, the studio blowing up from... 140 people to 450, which is... Talk about growing pains. Wow. I thought you were going to say the studio blowing up, and I was well, like, "Wow, that is a serious that, obstacle." That to is. I mean, they used <laughs> to be in, they used to be in seven countries, and then the war in Ukraine mm-hmm. started, and they shut down their St. Petersburg office in the first week and relocated wow. everybody from so there. possibly so, closer to yes, reality. Actually, than actually, than actually reality. Um, COVID hurt them a lot, and the biggest change from Divinity: Original Sin two to Baldur's Gate three, other than the name and the D and D and stuff, is that in Baldur's Gate three, every single conversation takes place with like full cinematic style so you're getting close-ups of the characters it's like playing dragon age inquisition or whatever mass effect where you're like seeing every character's faces so normally the game takes place through more of a zoomed out isometric style but then for every conversation you really get in close and you see people's reactions which is why the game took so long and why they needed so many people so here we are Baldur's gate 3 is out people are very very excited for it because of the game's uh, pedigree and because of Larian's uh, kind of experience in recent years and people getting really, really into Larian's games. So what do we all think about it? So Maddie, you were finding it a little bit complicated yeah, to start. I have, a, I have a question just to start. So would you two say that Baldur's Gate 3 is more similar to Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2 or more akin to Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 and 2.5? Because is- I have no point of comparison for it. It is Other than that, it looks kind of like Diablo to me, but it's not like Diablo at all. <laughs> no, it's not like it's only the camera angle. It's like Diablo. Yep, that's no, right. It's, it is a hundred percent Divinity Original Sin two with D and D mechanics. Okay. So perhaps people who didn't play those two games or three, if you, you know, just two, yeah, it's just two. It's Baldur's Gate that has the two point five. People who didn't play Divinity Original Sin one and two and are have just been chilling out waiting for Baldur's Gate might play Baldur's Gate three and be like what the heck is going on. That, that's just an interesting experience for those people, I suppose. Yeah, I think it'll feel familiar if you played some of the old um, the old isometric role-playing games like Planescape Tournament or Icewind Dale or Baldur's Gate, any of those games. It'll feel familiar. But yes, but the the, the idea of like systems and like seeing yeah. barrels everywhere that you can throw and, and, and they do things and interacting yeah. with acid and fire and water and electricity, all that stuff is straight out of uh, Larian's previous games. 
Totally. And that stuff actually reminds me of Marvel's Midnight Suns, which is a game that only Kirk and I played, but other people should check out. We did make Jason play it for, for a couple minutes at least, where you can interact with the environment a lot and like set up a shot. I'm really enjoying that aspect of the game so far. I'm only about three hours in, but I've already began, begun to understand like pushing enemies into stuff is a big part of combat, which I really liked about Marvel's Midnight Suns. It's something that made it a little bit more complex than XCOM, at least for me, and more fun is just using environmental attacks, thinking about angles and spacing on top of the abilities of each character in each position. That's something that's really fun and also kind of reminds me of the improvisational nature of playing D&D, which is something we talked about a lot last week and how that that dream of having that improvised battle of, oh, right, there was there was a chest over there. Can I go grab something from there? Can I use that? Can I throw this object that I have? Like that idea of just being able to use anything and everything. I mean, it's not perfect in any way, but I'm, I'm already starting to see that aspect and I'm super into that so far. Yeah, it's it's incredibly fun to play around in the environment and to figure out how how you can use different spells, the different effects, and how your choices kind of uh, uh, just act in dialogue with the world. It's incredibly fun. Um, so let's talk about uh, how yeah, we're approaching this. Yeah, should I say this. what character? What I are made? characters? Like a, yeah, yeah I was we gotta ask. do that, right? So what is what is your <laughs> yeah? What is your main character? So I'm a half orc barbarian, shocking no one at all. <laughs> Um, she's amazing. She's just a one-to-one recreation of me, personality-wise, physical appearance-wise. As you guys know, Race I have those wise. huge, huge fangs, mm-hmm. green mm-hmm. skin. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was very, sure. very fun to design um, the visuals of the character, too. I mean, that's something that I'm sure people have already talked about elsewhere but i i was really good damn i can really like i i mean there's there's only a couple body types i'll say that but beyond that i was like wow i can really be any any shade of green or a non-green shade but i definitely wanted to go green or i can have a billion hairstyles i'm i love that i was i was very into making my barbarian look extremely freaking cool and i didn't know if that would matter but then seeing what jason described like all the close-ups it's very Dragon Age, which I did play the Dragon Ages and the Mass Effects and loved them. And so having those character close-ups and getting to see like my character's facial expressions to like match the dialogue I'm choosing and then feel like she's really connected to the world, even though I designed her completely, like that's that's very cool to me. I, I like yeah. being able to design someone and then have them be just plopped into the world and it there's no friction there. She just is right there along with all these other completely bespoke NPCs that I'm buddies or friendlies with. Yeah, this is a game where it really matters what your character looks like because you're going to be seeing them a lot. Yeah, constantly. In these yeah. Scenes. Um, so, Kirk, you were just the character creator. Yeah, what did you me, make? Did you did you play in early access at all, or is this your first time playing? Nope, I have totally avoided okay. it because I don't know. I do a I've done that a lot with Larian games where I play early access <laughs> and then you know it's always sort of a slow start and it all gets taken away when it when yeah, it launches you lose again. Your progress. Yeah, mm-hmm. although this and, one, you know, I will say, having played in Early Access, this one is three years later, so you do forget a lot of it. But yeah, go on. So I'm playing as a bard, half-elf bard. Got to get those charisma bonuses. I really want to play a charismatic character this time around, because I think, well, something that I found in uh, Divinity Original Sin 2 is that uh, a lot of the most interesting stuff happens in dialogue, which I suppose makes sense that something... Uh, you were getting at, Jason, is that they allow for a lot of choice in these games, and they're all about choice. It's about doing more than just combat, 
and sneaking, basically, which is what a lot of role-playing games do. And I think that a lot of the most interesting systems tend to take place in dialogue, which um, makes sense because dialogue is, you know, it's a written version of the same kind of talking of communication that it D&D is built out of like really all you need is text and you could do a whole role playing game. So in a game with a lot of text that's taking place, you know, it's you're talking to people, but you're also getting prompts. And, you know, there's sort of storytelling going on in the prompts that you're given in the sort of things you're trying to do. Like you can use your different proficiencies in conversation in different ways. This is in Divinity Original Sin 2, and I'm assuming it works the same way in Baldur's Gate 3, where yeah, if you have a does. proficiency in intimidation or persuasion, you're going to take different paths, and I'm assuming sometimes get different outcomes based on the way you, you go through the conversation. So well, I really am in- Well, pause for a second. It's D&D, so you're rolling a dice. You're literally rolling a D20, and you see Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I know. I've, I've played enough to see that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm getting there, but, but it's that same idea. So... Um, I think that that's really cool, like that you that that gives the most interesting options as opposed to just someone with a lot of cool combat abilities, because really everyone has cool combat abilities. And I know from Divinity Original Sin 2 that it's all about the party anyways. I mean, like the party that I built in that game, I customize everyone's classes, I guess, in that game. But I had, you know, it didn't really matter what class my character was. It was more about the party. And I wound up being happy that I picked, in my view, the most interesting character in that game, who is um, Los who's a bard she um you can pick you can like make your own backstory if you want but there are these pre-written backstories in divinity original sin 2 that i think is the same uh, you can kind of do something similar in Baldur's gate mm-hmm. but anyways what was cool about losa was that she has this evil spirit inside of her that is just terrifyingly powerful and everyone who she goes to to try to figure out what it is like gets really scared she's sort of a medium she like through her whole life, she's always had spirits just turning up sometimes, and they come and go, and it's like part of her life. And she's this famous entertainer who goes around singing and always has just sort of different people coming into her mind to talk to her. But then someone has turned up who is like not that, like who's way more powerful. And the whole her whole story is finding out who it is and trying to figure out what she's going to do and how she's going to become free. And it winds up being really cool. It reminds me of Disco Elysium. Yeah. It's this whole story of like, this other person inside of you, you have all these inner conversations. Sometimes that that like expresses itself in role playing moments where you're trying to do something to threaten that entity and it's like stopping you and it plays out really cool. You can have skill checks against yourself where you'll go evil and attack everybody. Mm-hmm. So I, I can tell that's already going to be at play with everybody's character in Baldur's Gate because you have this like mind flare worm in your brain mm-hmm. uh, at the very beginning. It does seem as though they took that idea and they were like, okay, that was a re- that was the coolest character in our last game. Let's just make every character have that element to themselves. Anyways, long story short, these are the reasons I'm excited for this game and why I wanted to play a very dialogue, persuasion, charisma-heavy character, which I know is the bard just from, you know, obviously it's the bard. And so it would be fun also to, like, carry around carry around a loot and, like, play my loot for people. <laughs> that just seemed like it would be a fun thing to do. Yeah, the bard, I think, is a really good class, but I will say that in this game, it's actually a little bit more like Disco Elysium than it is, like, Divinity Original Sin 2, because it's a little bit more 
more like D&D in the sense that as you're going through the game and you're going through dialogue options, oftentimes there are four different checks that you could potentially go through. And yep. so you can decide based on what your character is best at, what you want to roll. You can also start conversations with different members of your party or start actions with different members of your party, depending on what you want to, uh, what, what, which skill uh, they are best at. So I've been playing, uh, I think I've logged like 12 hours into this uh, full release, 1.0 release, like whatever, the final version of the game, so wow. far in the past couple of days since I got an early copy. We're all playing on early copies, by the way, provided by Larian. Um, and I am playing as a half-elf sorcerer um, with a uh, subclass. You eventually get, uh, when you hit level three, you get to like pick a subclass for whatever your class is. And my subclass is crazy cool it lets me um it gives my character uh a fly a bonus action every time i cast a spell so i can cast a spell and then use fly to just kind of like jump up in the air and go wherever i want after (laughs) afterwards um and sorcerer is really fun class just because you get access to a lot of different spells and you don't have to worry about scrolls and stuff you can just kind of pick what spells you want and so can blast apart everybody with magic missile and i will say that after after many hours after 12 hours of the game so far um it rules it lives up to expectation um i'm mostly i'm in so far i'm just in the act one of the game so it's all content that like people could have been playing by now and some of it i did play when i checked out the game in early access but um yeah i'm just uh super impressed so far by the degree of choice and the spider web of options that you have i mean just like one quest alone might have five different possible endings and one thing i'm doing with this game is i'm trying not to save scum i'm just kind of letting the dice fall where they may which i think is a fun a fun way to experience it yeah so let me throw something to the two of you that uh, I've been thinking about a lot as I get into this, especially because I recently replayed Divinity Original Sin 2 and was doing a little bit more of a min-max playthrough. And that's that, min-maxing versus just role-playing. And I guess it's a, something you were kind of getting at there, Jason, where you just let the die lie. You don't, you don't save scum and re-roll and, um, and just play it out. And yeah, I'm really going to try to commit to doing that in this playthrough as well, just because... Partly in the spirit of Dungeons and Dragons, which I've been playing as well, and there's no saves coming there. Of course, there is the fact that the DM is forgiving and isn't going to yeah, just there's ruin a the game save. for us all. Yeah. There's kind of a fail save. He'll always give us a way out, but um, but all the same, I, I feel like um, you know I can still kind of trust the game to provide that, and I I find often that saves coming as a result of me not really trusting the game to let me have a good time, even if some of my characters get killed, even if something bad happens or I screw up a role, or you know I have a I don't convince the person to let me in and have to figure out another way, and um, I think some of that is because of the transparency that you mentioned earlier about how you watch the dice roll which is a wonderful thing that I didn't know they did in this game. I I figured they'd show you the skill check, but the fact that you actually roll the dice is just perfect. I mean, that is exactly like one of, I think half the reason that my group plays D&D is because we want to get together and roll dice on table (laughs) and like hear the sound and like see Mm -hmm. it roll. I mean, the sound in the game is very satisfying too. And it's got like a little sparkly chime for all of your additional points, whatever those are called. I've forgotten that, that, Oh, when you get your, yeah, you're like proficient 
efficiency yeah. bonuses yes, add yes. up and precisely you, you get to see the, where you're like okay number. i only rolled a 10 but oh i got a plus four and a plus three and then you're like yes made it cracked the lock or whatever it might be it just feels very very exciting and similar to rolling a number on the table that you know is going to add up correctly the same way so for what it's worth, there's a setting in the, in the uh, uh, well, there's a toggle in the settings called karmic dice that will like rig the dice a little bit. So if you want them to be truly fair and random, you should turn off that setting. But that setting essentially exists to like prevent streaks of bad luck. Um, but yeah, if you want, if you want the real, the real transparency of the dice, you got to turn off karmic dice. That's really interesting. I didn't know about that setting, but I might yeah. leave it on because it's almost like them accounting for the fact that the DM will have mercy on you mm-hmm. after a I little agree. while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And That's they've talked really about it because it was kind of controversial and people in the, the subreddit were upset and were like, oh, I don't want this karmic dice. I'm going to turn it off right away. And they like, I want the pure Hilarian, ob- the objective numbers. Yeah, probability <laughs> needs to be real. And like, that's fine if that's how yeah. you want to play but it it does only kick in if you get multiple bad rolls in a row which i feel like does account for the dm in your life will be like okay you seriously rolled five ones today all right we're gonna have you like comedically fall down this cliff and then stumble upon a chest full of stuff that you need because this is just getting ridiculous Mm -hmm. and i i think there's some other waiting as i recall even if you like get a good roll on the the next one, do the karmic dice. The the enemies will all be stronger. Like to kind of wait out, like your luck mm-hmm. in some other way. Like you'll have some other bad luck to counteract it. I I don't know all of the details under the hood, but I'm leaving karmic dice on. I'm happy to have a friendly DM on my side. Mm. Agree. So I I think so. I think it's really neat aesthetically, and it puts but it puts me in a mindset like I'm playing D&D and I think that's really important because it's going to affect how I approach the game uh, because it's just going to feel different and so I'm going to be more willing to just go with it and it's made me think more and more about just like transparency of those kinds of systems I guess Mm -hmm. it's something that um, Disco Elysium did really well which I love like it would show you yeah what your what kind of dice roll it's doing and you know whether you passed or failed like you were constantly seeing all these roles going on under the hood, which made the game feel alive, not in a like immersive Red Dead Redemption 2 way where they're absolutely hiding all of that from you and you just see this world and you don't really know what's real and what's not. And so you kind of just believe that it's real or some part of your brain does. It's totally the opposite. It's immersive because it's showing you all of the ticking gears and you actually, like I find myself really swept up in that and um, more willing to like play according to that, uh, to sort of that, set up like to to just be to go with it yeah the 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 kind of the flip side of that is that you just have to trust that the game is not going to be super buggy um which in my experience i mean i got a couple of annoying bugs but mostly is not i will share one fun story which is that i was fighting in this big battle and I'm like, uh, I am on a high ground and fighting against a ton of enemies on a low ground. And suddenly goblins began to appear next to my characters. And for a second, I was like, man, is this game bugging out? Like, what the hell is going on here? Are these goblins like teleporting without the game actually telling me? And I was, I was worried that the game, like, I, again, if you're expecting transparency and the game starts bugging with you in some way, you're kind of, you lose that trust a little bit, right? Um, and that's why it's so important for a game like this. Mm-hmm. Like, you really have to put your your faith in it that it's being fair with you and not bugging out and, and fucking with you um 
anyway, so I was trying to figure out, trying to figure out, wound up figuring out on my second time trying that same battle that the reason goblins were appearing is because an ogre was throwing barrels at my characters and the barrels were exploding next to the characters and then goblins were in the barrels. And so actually Amazing. the goblins are just popping up out of barrels. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. So that's what's going on here. And realizing nice. that was a super fun thing. And, and um, I do think to your point, Kirk, the game not hiding things from you except when it should hide things from you like so you get into a new you get into a house and there's someone hiding around the corner you don't you don't the game shouldn't should keep that from you but maybe oh you, yeah sure. maybe it'll tell you you failed a perception check in the way that in a dnd in dnd a dm might ominously say something like that like hey roll a d20 i'm not going to tell you why but just do it so there is a level of that kind of opacity required too but once you trust the game and you trust the dm to give you a good time you're probably gonna have a good time can i ask you now that you've played as much as you have would you recommend watching a story recap of the first two games i know that it stands alone on its own but i'm guessing like even knowing who you know where Om is or like who ball is and, and some of this basic D lore stuff is would that be helpful for people before they play this game so i can't really answer that yet because the first act of the game has absolutely nothing to do with the first with the original Baldur's gate games but i can give kind of some broad stuff based on what i know which is so this game is set 100 years in the future from Baldur's gate one and two you definitely do not need to play Baldur's gate one and two um, there are going to be some references, and it's set in the same universe called the Forgotten Realms of D&D, which some D&D players, a lot of D&D players will know some of that stuff anyway, because a lot of D&D campaigns are set in that world. Um, so the city of Baldur's Gate, for example, is a huge city in that world, and you're going to go and visit that in the game. Um, I also know that there are some returning characters from the first couple of games who are still alive 100 years later and pop up in the game. Um, but I have a feeling that this game is not going to expect you to know that at all. And so, so far from what I've played, there hasn't even been like the most minor reference that I can see to um, the original game. So no, I don't think it's super necessary. That said, it can't hurt to go and watch a recap just for fun. And like, and maybe there'll be stuff that pops up later that's connected. In fact, I know there will be because I haven't even met those characters that are recurring um, from the first few games yet. But, um, but I do not think it's necessary from what I've seen so far. I might change my opinion on that after I played 50 hours, so we'll see, but for now. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's 15 minutes or whatever, so it's not a huge ask. If you're if that sounds remotely interesting, you might as yeah. well. I A thing that it did for me, in addition to just explaining the setting and um, some of the basics of what happened, it just put me in the mood. It kind of gave me a sense of the types of stories that mm -hmm. these games had, since I'd never really played one and didn't know that it's, you know, it's a story of you, you know, you're this sort of bastard child of the god of murder like it's a very dark world and and a and kind of full of betrayal and surprising twists there are characters i think it's in Baldur's Gate 2 who you meet and you can be an ally with who then fully betray you and become villains and a lot of really cool stuff like that it had it had really dramatic narrative turns which is pretty exciting um the whole the whole uh this sort of frequency that the story is on i think uh, is cool and not necessarily what a person might think if they've only seen the video where the guy has sex with a bear. <laughs> like they might not totally have a sense of the world. And if nothing else, I, I do think a video like that will give you a feel for, all right, what this is like. And I mean, 
in fairness, also the opening cinematic does the same thing. So yeah, the opening cinematic's like super gross. Should we say that? Like, I feel like mainly my, what I was surprised by is how gross it is. Like, you get a tadpole inserted in your eye Hell by like yeah, an eldritch do. horror, and then you got to like flyer. walk through a, a sphincter. Like the doors are called sphincters. I, I don't know. You're like walking through an alien butthole in order to escape. I don't know why, but you're in like a hell world. You're in a yeah, hell. Yeah, it's dimension. like gory and and dark. I mean, the Forgotten Realms as a general setting are that way. But uh, but yeah, yeah it's I, really I enjoyed... messed up there. It's These a good Forgotten Realms are forgotten for place. a reason. I There's say. a lot of lightheartedness. I would say Baldur's Gate Three oh, feels absolutely. more more lighthearted than the first two games did. Even. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's not it's Diablo Four like no, by any stretch. Even well, from the no, very beginning. No, that's true. It's Diablo Four in the sense. So it's very sticky and gross looking and there's a lot of like bodily fluids on the ground at least <laughs> at first but it's not Diablo 4 in the sense that it's D&D in terms of tone and lightheartedness and finding a ragtag group of pals to run with and maybe those pals will betray me later and I'll take all this back I don't know <laughs> Um, so we will be jumping into this game in the coming days and we're going to do a triple play on Baldur's Gate 3 next week when we've all had a chance to give it some proper, some proper hours and talk about some of the things we saw and checked out and talk about our characters and our party. We can talk about the party members, lots to talk about next week. So why don't we take a break for now and then we'll be back with one more thing. Hi everyone, I'm Lara House. And I'm Annabelle Gerwich, and sometimes it feels like the whole world is a dumpster fire. Right? There's too much to worry about. That's why we make Tiny Victories. It's a 15-minute podcast where we celebrate our minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. And listeners call in, like Valerie, who found the perfect gift for her daughter's boyfriend, and Adam, who finally turned his couch cushion the right way. And little happinesses, like how birdsong helps your brain. That's science! So join us in not freaking out for 15 minutes a week. That's Tiny Victories with Annabelle and Laura, Mondays on Maximum Fun. Woo! It's a tiny victory just to make a network promo. Honestly. Are you tired of being picked on for only wanting to talk about your cat at parties? Do you feel as though your friends don't understand the depth of love you have for your guinea pig? around a room of people do you wonder if they know sloths only have to eat one leaf a month have you ever dumped someone for saying they're just not an animal person us too she's alexis b preston she's ella mcleod and we host comfort creatures the show where you can't talk about your pets too much animal trivia is our love language and dragons are just as real as dinosaurs tune into comfort creatures every thursday on maximum fun And we are back. Kirk, Maddie, it is time for one more thing. Maddie, what is your one more thing? I'm playing a game called Pokemon Sleep. Calling it a game is perhaps generous. Uh-huh. It's a terrible game, but I have to play <laughs> oh, no. it every every day because it's helping me a lot. And I, okay. I, this is my life now is that I just have to play Pokemon Sleep every day, I guess. <laughs> Tell me it's more. It's improving my life and I, I'm not happy about it. Uh, so Pokemon Sleep, it was announced a few weeks ago by the Pokemon company in a really weird live stream where they didn't tell us what it was going to be. And then they were like, yeah, we're releasing a sleep tracking app where you like hang out with a Snorlax and leave your phone on all night while Snorlax sleeps and you sleep. And then when you wake up, a whole bunch of other little Pokemon are sleeping next to Snorlax and you study their sleep styles 
And I guess if you buy some type of $50 Pokemon Go peripheral, it'll also sync up with Pokemon Go and give you rewards. But I haven't paid $50 for that because I, I don't want to do that. I'm just using Yet. a sleep tracking app. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't convince myself to do that. So as far as sleep tracking apps go, I actually really like sleep tracking apps. I've used them for many years. I used to use one called Sleep Cycle before I had a Fitbit. And I have 10 years of sleep data on myself every night for over 10 years wow. via either my Fitbit or sleep cycle. And I have charts, I have graphs. I have so much information about how poorly I slept during Gamergate. It's crazy and no one needs mm. this data. It's completely useless, but I have it and it's there for me. So I was like, all right, sure. I'll try another sleep app. As far as sleep apps go, this one's terrible. It drains your phone battery more than any other app I've tried. You have to leave your phone on all night. Usually sleep apps will let you minimize the app and not have to have it on all the time. Like, for example, you could like tab over to a podcast if you're listening to a podcast in the middle of the night. Can't do that with Pokemon Sleep. If you tab away, it will stop recording your sleep data unless you return mm. to the app and maximize it again. Terrible. The worst. Why is it helping me? Because every morning I have to click on the Pokemon right after I wake up and it wakes me up to click on the Pokemon. It just does <laughs> okay. because, because there's so much game that you have to play right first thing in the morning. Like you have to make breakfast for Snorlax because he's hungry as so you have to make him mm -hmm. breakfast and the Pokemon become your friends and they start collecting berries and you have to click on the Pokemon. They give you the berries and you click on the berries and then you have to make the berries into a recipe for Snorlax and you click on that and you make sure he eats his breakfast and then you got to click on all your Pokemon, make sure they're leveled up and then you got to like make mm -hmm. sure your Pokemon are like properly allotted, like the right berry collecting Pokemon are all in the lineup and they're ready for the next night and by the time you've done that it's five minutes later and you're wide awake you're wide awake by then <laughs> and it is it has gotten me out of bed so much faster than anything else i've ever done i i hate to admit this i look normally i'm a person who turns my snooze button on and i just roll right over but this is not that way you you pick up your phone you start clicking on those little pokemon you're awake you're awake before you know it I'm glad this is working for you, but this sounds like an absolute nightmare to it's, me. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a nightmare, and I do kind of hate it, but also it's so adorable that it's kind of hard uh -huh. to be too mad at it, you know? Like, okay. it's very, it's sure. pleasant in the way that a Pokemon yeah, game yeah. is, and it's extremely gentle. And They're very cute, the So by the end of it, you're like, well, I'm awake. I may as well go for a run. And that's been me, like, every day. And, uh... Here we if, are. If you don't want to hit the, <laughs> the snooze button again, try having a four-year-old come in and jump on your bed every morning. I can't. I'm not interested in that. I'm, I'd rather take care of my Pokemon, it's Jason. It's like a real-life Pokemon. Then you have to feed her berries, and you have to mm -hmm. assemble her. And I, and I have to collect the berries every day. Yeah, so on me to do idea, that? I, I don't yeah. know. So I, if you, I, I've heard of these alarms that people have where it's like play a game in order to turn off the alarm. This is kind of like that. Although the game, you're opting into it. Like the alarm is off. You don't need to play the game in order to like achieve anything. So I mm -hmm. could just stop doing this at any time. But I have to admit it's mm -hmm. working so far. So I don't know. Pokemon Sleep. It's a, it's a really stupid app, but it's gotten me out of bed for over a week now. So maybe it's good. I don't know. <laughs> is it? Is, is it? it? We'll see if I'm still playing it in a An week. Open question. Uh, a nicely am an ambivalent one more thing. Kirk, what's your one more thing? My one more thing is a book series that I started reading and am on the third book of, which sounds like a lot, but isn't because it's a really long series. <laughs> it's called The Vorkosigan Saga by Lois McMaster Bujold. It's a famous 
uh, sci-fi, many Nebula, etc., award-winning sci-fi series. Began in 1986, ran through, I think, 2018. Uh, many, many books and short stories, mostly surrounding a character named Miles Verkosigan, but also his family and his friends. It is a very much a swashbuckling sci-fi political space opera. Um, it's really good. It's really entertaining. And uh, yeah, I wanted to, to at least mention that I've started reading it and to recommend the first couple of books that I've read and to sort of explain to people how I'm reading it if anybody wants to wants to give this a shot. So um, these books, like I said, there's a whole lot of them, uh, the, the Verkosigan story. And there, there's kind of a, a number of little collections. And they were published in a, a kind of spread out order. So people go back and forth between whether you should read them in chronological order or internal chronological order, because the books take place on a timeline, but uh, McMaster Bujold published them, you know, in a, in a very different order. So she recommends a sort of internal chronological order. And then I actually found a website that recommends a modified version of her internal chronological order, which I'll link in the show notes. Um, Love it when you need to do homework to read a book series. Yeah, this is reminding me of those like charts of everything Terry Pratchett's ever written uh that people uh upload that are just like a spider web of like, here's the read order. Or like when you have to do (laughs) Buffy and Angel, but switch between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that one's pretty easy. But yeah, I think with this kind of genre stuff, I mean, this is like comic books. I'm surprised neither of you mentioned comics, that's, but yeah, I mean, I've never read know, comic like, books. This <laughs> is like when you're in that kind of genre space, people are more into keeping track of this kind of complex stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that some authors just really like it seems clear that McMaster Bujol just likes being like, I'm going to write a short story. Now I'm going to write the story of Miles's parents. And that's actually, those are the two books that I've read. Collected, they're called Cordelia's Honor. But the two names, the names of the books are Shards of Honor and Barriar, which are the story of the, the actual protagonist of most of the books, Miles Varkosigan, his parents, how they met, um, the whole story. It's like this whole complicated story of the sort of politics and infighting on the world of Barriar. It's got war. It's got romance. It has a really amazing love story at the center. Uh, wonderful protagonist, Cordelia. Um, is the his mother is the main the sort of point of view character for the first two books and then Miles takes over and it's cool to read it this way because I'm kind of reading a prequel that was written by an author who already knew what she needs to set up like for example there are a bunch of characters in these books who are babies and there are all these babies being born in various circumstances and I'm like oh, all right so the emperor is just a little child right now well he's going to definitely be emperor by the time Miles is 18 in the first book so he's going to be a character and then another like a you know another girl baby is born I'm like oh but she's going to be interesting maybe she'll be a love interest so you're kind of like meeting these the parents of all these characters that you know are going to be really important and it's just really cool um I haven't really gotten into Miles's story but I know that a very crucial part of it, I've started The Warrior's Apprentice, is that Miles is born with a number of really serious physical disabilities. Like his bones don't, like they break super, super easily. He's a lot shorter than he would be. And it's because there's like an attack on his family uh, when his mom is pregnant with him. He almost dies and like they they barely manage to save him. And on the planet of Bariar, 
because they have like a there was a whole nuclear war and kind of a lot of radioactive fallout. They're really, really terrified of anyone who looks different or has what they consider to be a mutation, even though in his case it's not. It's just like there were basically medical procedures that saved his life that allowed him to be born at all. So a lot of people are super intolerant of him, but also he's very powerful because his father is this like super powerful guy. So mm-hmm. it's this kind of mix of privilege, but he's also looked down upon. He's a real Tyrion Lannister type is what it sounds He's like. a real Tyrion Lannister type in a lot of ways. He's brilliant and very uh, manipulative and persuasive. He's very good at getting people to do things for him. He has an amazing bodyguard who we've learned his whole very complicated backstory. Anyways, I believe I've seen it said that this series like really interestingly deals with disability in general, also with their queer romances and all kinds of different like many different cultures that in like have relationships that work very differently. The sexual politics of each group are like really complicated. Yeah, it's like probably aliens, right? I mean, if it's different planets, you know, and... there aren't, and it's kind huh. of interesting. It's uh, it, it's all humans. It's not clear where everything is. Everyone is humans, but they're all different cultures, right? And Barry in particular was cut off from the rest of the other sort of civilizations, the other cultures for this period. I'm forgetting what they call it. It's like they have a name for it. And there was like all this warring going on on Bariar and they've then reconnected with everybody. And that's where most of the um, story takes place. It's where R.L. Verkosigan, Miles's father, is a very important like Bariar and Count who is like really tied up with the emperor and all this stuff. So, man, I mean, it's just like cool, interesting world building and storytelling. It deals with a lot of really intense stuff. Sexual trauma, violence, repressed memories. It's uh, pretty intense if you just look at what she's talking about. But she maintains a pretty light touch throughout the whole thing. And it never feels exploitative, or at least it hasn't to me yet. Granted, I'm only three books in. I've been surprised at some of the subjects that she's willing to talk about. But it's all just felt like part of the world that she's building. And it really is a a fascinating world full of great characters. I don't know. I've really been getting a lot out of it. I think she's a wonderful and very surprising writer. I never know what's going to happen next. And even just those first two books were an incredible setup for what I gather is now going to be a real saga about Miles, about you know, a character who's not even really in those first two books. But um, so anyways, I thought I'd throw that down. Um, I know that's a lot, but there's like so much more to say about this. Um, I'm guessing neither of you two will ever read it. I really want someone to talk to about these books because uh, mm-hmm. Emily, my wife, yeah, recommended you gotta them. you got to find but... someone before it inevitably gets adapted into like an HBO television show. And then I you're wonder, the only yeah. person who's read them all. <laughs> it would be really good, at least from what I've read. It would be an incredibly good TV series. Uh, it definitely has a lot of like exciting action and romance and drama and sex and whatever else. Like it's like very cool and like interesting cultures colliding. Um, It seems like it would be a Mm -hmm. a really good show. Game of Thrones meets Dune. I'm pitching it right now. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And uh, I'd say like a lighter touch than Game of Thrones. Like it's very, uh, well, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, So anyways, I'm only three books in. There's a million of these. It's really cool. I really (laughs) like it so far. Um, So that's the Vorkosigan saga. I've read um, Shards of Honor and Bariar. That's where I started, and now I'm on The Warrior's Apprentice, and I'm going to keep reading them. I really like them. Cool. cool. Um, okay, my one more thing. Um, I've been secretly <laughs> watching a TV show uh, called Billions. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know someone was talking about this in the Discord, that actually that was on a bonus episode? It was. And so it's, we, we always allude to the fact that I secretly watched Billions, but the real reveal of that 
That's for members only. Yeah, That's well, true. a good good reason to uh, if you, you want to hear Jason shouting that Kirk is a sociopath and being legitimately affronted for at least a kind couple of horrified. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Although we did we did uh, remove the paywall for the baby reveal. That's true. We That's did true. do that. Yeah. That's true. The war has spilled out into the main feed. <laughs> anyway, I've been rewatching Billions, which is a very fun show to rewatch because yeah, it's a good I'm television a, show. <laughs> I'm at a nice, I'm at a nice it sweet is. spot where uh, it's been like four years since I've watched it last, so I forgot a lot of what happens, and it's a really good show if you don't know what's going to happen. But it's also mm-hmm. just an extra, incredibly good, like well done show in many, many ways. Um, but I wanted to focus specifically on one thing, which is the. Ice Juice episode, the episode of the show that is the penultimate episode of season two, um, where Bobby Axelrod sabotages Ice Juice as an attempt to, uh, an attempt to, uh, I should say, by the way, I'm going to spoil this episode right here, uh, so... Tune out if you don't want billion spoilers for season two, episode eleven. And honestly, this episode's worth watching. Spoiler it free. Is. I'll say this it. Is, this it might is, be I the greatest say, episode of billions. Like it's so it's definitely good. the high point of billions. I would say it was having marathon that whole series. This was it's it was the peak of the whole show, and it really well, it remained fun for a while. This episode is the best, and if you are ever going to watch Billions, you should not be spoiled on it. If you're ever going to watch Billions, turn off the show right now and watch Billions, and also, why haven't you watched yeah. it yet? Go okay. watch Billions. Jason, back to you. Go secretly <laughs> go secretly watch Billions and surprise all your friends. Um, so, in this episode, this episode <laughs> this is, is structured... This episode is kind of... <laughs> this episode is structured kind of like an Ocean's Eleven heist or something like that, which is fitting because I believe the show's uh, co-creators directed uh oceans 13 i believe bing just a little point of clarification here as i am editing the episode billions was created by brian koppelman and david levian who wrote the screenplay for oceans 13 but of course oceans 13 like 12 and 11 was directed by steven soderbergh so just wanted to get those names in there okay back to the episode bing so yeah, oh. so this this uh, this episode is directed like a heist, and it's very smartly constructed. It starts off with like the Chiron, like Chiron saying like three weeks ago, which is very confusing because mm-hmm. you're like a go, a go from what, and then it jumps around <laughs> in time from there. You find out that Bobby Axelrod has this master plan to sabotage the juice chain, ice juice, because his rival Chuck Rhodes and Chuck Rhodes's dad have a big position, a big financial position in ice juice, and if Bobby sa- sabotages it, they will lose a lot of money. Um, and then as the show goes, you see Chuck Rhodes, our main character, played by Paul Giamatti. You see him losing and losing and losing and losing. And you see him kind of, you wonder what his deal is, why he doesn't seem as upset as maybe he should be about losing a whole lot of money. Um, you see his best friend and his father both losing a lot of money as a result of this. And then at the end, the grand reveal, Chuck sitting on a bed in the uh, Harvard club where he is staying, sitting on a bed, his hand hands in his uh, eyes, like covering his eyes. You only see the back of his head. And you and think he's sobbing. He's shaking. He's making these tears? noises. It sounds tears like he's rage? sobbing. And then 
And then the flashback, three weeks ago, once again, then you see his master plan unfold in which you find out that he was baiting Bobby into doing this the whole time. Mm -hmm. And it's part of his master plan to convince Bobby, to get, like, tease Bobby into doing something super illegal and leaving some loose threads behind so that Chuck can then pull them and unravel the whole scheme and send Bobby to prison, which he uh, which he he has him arrested at the beginning of the next episode. And then after the scheme is unveiled, Kirk, you cut to him laughing. laughing. And that's when we see that he was not, in fact, crying. He was, he was cracking up on his bed. Lack- laughing because it all worked out. Yes. I, I mean, I can't believe... Way. Bobby is coming back to billions, guys. I can't believe he's, they got him back. He's coming back. <laughs> um, Did you guys know this? You knew this. You knew yeah, that. I, back. It, yes. I, yeah, I kind of stopped so. watching that show, though. But uh, it, 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 it when, I'm I mean, excited about it. So, yeah. So this episode, um, really a masterpiece in storytelling and just so enjoyable to watch even the second time through. But, yeah, Billions in general, just a really fun show to watch again. So if you out there... Have whether you have watched it or you haven't watched it, consider checking out Billions. But one more one thing I will add is that our modern streaming world is incredibly annoying. Um, so Showtime as an app doesn't really exist anymore. It's like folded into Paramount Plus, and Paramount Plus, uh, the Billions episodes, a couple of them just randomly are just super choppy and like unwatchable on Paramount Plus. So I've had to go to Amazon Prime, which also has Billions, to watch those episodes that are choppy on Paramount Plus because Paramount mm-hmm. Plus doesn't actually have a customer support. Like pretty much nothing these days has actual customer <laughs> support except for like oh. Amazon. Um, and so Paramount Plus, you can't. And I googled it. I like checked reddit nobody's really talking about this because like how many people are out there being like i'm gonna go watch season one of billions and paramount plus so this thing is super <laughs> choppy i even went as far as to dm paramount plus on twitter but <laughs> i guess they're not checking it um so yeah so it, it just doesn't work on certain episodes of paramount plus maybe someone out there maybe a triple click listener who works for paramount can fix this problem but anyway streaming is a pain in the ass uh amazon prime at least it works okay on there anyway that's mm-hmm. that's my one more thing billions enjoyable show very fun to watch and that is it for this week's episode let's go play a ton of elders gate 3 and then we can talk about it next week very excited to hear both of your thoughts and to play some more of that game in the meantime Eric Manning I'll see you both next week yes see you both next week bye Triple Click is produced by Jason Schreier, Maddie Myers, and me, Kirk Hamilton. I edit and mix the show and also wrote our theme music. Our show art is by Tom DJ. Some of the games and products we talked about on this episode may have been sent to us for free for review consideration. You can find a link to our ethics policy in the show notes. Triple Click is a proud member of the Maximum Fun Podcast Network, and if you like our show, we hope you'll consider supporting us by becoming a member at MaximumFun.org join. Find us on Twitter at TripleClickPod, send email to TripleClick at MaximumFun.org, and find a link to our Discord in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Maximum Fun, a worker-owned network of artist-owned shows, supported directly by you.
doing the math, if there's like say say there were 500 megabytes on a CD-ROM when they kind of first came out, there's 122 gigabytes in Baldur's Gate 3. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it would be 200. And 40, <laughs> that's uncompressed. I guess that's not accurate. So yeah. you'd be like, Ma, this game is big. It's 200 CDs. <laughs> like, oh could God. you imagine? Imagine the That'd manufacturing costs for, <laughs> for that game. It's oh one of those goodness. case logic, just books of CDs. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're uh-huh. installing it for a whole week before you can play Oh, it. my God. And it's a week of active installing because you have to keep going back <laughs> yeah. to yeah, your computer. And switching yeah. the the your install over. fails on disc 157. Uh-huh. You're uh-huh. like, fuck, <laughs> I'm never going to play this. 